We are in Genesis this semester. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to, in 30 minutes, try to look at the whole... Well, we're not going to look at, but we're going to treat the whole flood account in one night. Uh, But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to read... Verses uh, start in verse 5 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. So if you would read this with me. These are the generations of Noah. Noah, oh sorry, that's verse 9. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters on the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into, into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. And I just want to jump straight in into it tonight. I want, to, um, just, I want to focus on, this isn't the only three things this story is about. But I want to focus on tonight for our time together, three things that this story is about. The destruction of sin, the judgment of sin, and the rescue from sin. So the first one is the destruction of sin. When you get to, you know, this is a familiar story. Um, even people that are only somewhat familiar with the Bible probably know about the Bible's flood account. And what we are confronted with here in Genesis 6-9 through 9 is that if we don't understand the reality of sin and evil in the world, then this whole story kind of just seems far-fetched. It seems a little too much to believe or to deal with. But it's exactly the weight of chapter 6 for us to feel the weightiness To feel the wickedness of sin, the reality of that weight and wickedness in the world. And you look at verse 5 as Moab... Moab. Uh, I'm losing words tonight. 
Look at how Moses author, Moses who wrote this, verse 5, it's almost like he's grasping for words to accurately describe the state of the world at this time. Their wickedness was great. Every intention of their heart was only evil continually. The strongest language possible there in verse 5. In the heart, the Bible, in the Bible, the heart is the essence of a person, the core of a person, the sum total of a person. And what we're told here is that because of sin, the essence of man is defined by sin because it's in his heart. Then we get on to verse 11. It says the whole earth was corrupt and full of violence. And we are supposed to feel the weight of that. That's heavy. The same world that God set humanity as its pinnacle, as its crown. The same world that was full of life and beauty and order and God declaring it's good, it's good, it's good. It's that same world that we now turn to and it is now corrupt in God's sight. And it's filled with violence. My mom, uh, in the last year, um, uh, there was a spot found on her lung, and it was cancerous. And it was, God's grace, it was a very small uh, spot, and they removed like a third of her lung, I think, and apparently she's cancer-free. But before we knew any of that, right, and if you've dealt with a loved one that's, that's either battled cancer or succumbed to it, right, just that word, especially when it comes to a loved one saying that they have it, it sends, it sends shivers down your spine, does it not? Right? Because you don't even know the details of where it is or if it's contained or if it's spread. You don't know anything. Just that very word, the very thought of it being in the body of someone you know or love. You feel the weight of that. Because cancer equals corruption. We know that. And we know that no matter how contained it is or how we treat it, we treat it with the utmost seriousness and it, because if it goes unchecked, it reaps total destruction. That is the reality. I think it's a fair analogy to understand the reality of sin in the world. To understanding the reality and the gravity and the weight of sin in this world. And it's the first step to really understanding Christianity. It's the first step, step to understanding the world really. To let this at home, being disturbed by our own sin, realizing that it only results in violence and destruction. And that though it may not feel like it all the time, the Bible tells us over and over again is, it will kill you. It will kill you. Also, here's the key to verse 5, I think, as it sets the tone for the rest of the flood account. If you look at verse 5, this is one thing that it's asking us. Have you dealt with the fact that the problem of evil is not a problem that is completely located out there? That's the weight of verse 5. The weight of verse 5 is have you realized the weight of sin, the weight of the gravity, the reality of sin is not just something that exists out there. But it actually starts here. And it corrupts everything. That is the weight of verse 5. I don't know if you ever read Lord of the Flies. I had to read this in seventh grade. It's a good book. You should read it. Um, Lord of the Flies was like the dystopian classic before dystopias were cool. Um, it's the story of a post-World War II world, a group of uh, British schoolboys, which are like the symbol of prim and proper and innocent, right? It's a story about how a group of British schoolboys are stranded on an island left to fend for themselves. And, how, and the story, the novel, is basically about how in time they basically turn into savages and they start killing each other. 
And at the end of the novel, what happens is as they're pretty much having a Hunger Games, before Hunger Games were cool, they end up on the beach and they realize that a vessel has come, a vessel of soldiers has arrived to rescue them. And this is what, uh, how the book ends as they are confronted with the men, the adults that are there to save them. The tears began to flow and sobs shook him. He gave himself up to them now for the first time on the island. Great shuddering spasms of grief that seemed to wrench his whole body. His voice rose under the black smoke before the burning wreckage of the island. And infected by that emotion, the other little boys began to shake and sob too. And in the middle of them, with filthy body, matted hair, and unwiped nose, Ralph wept for the end of innocence, for the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. Piggy was his friend that got murdered. He cried for the end of innocence and the darkness of man's heart. Our gut reaction Though we're confronted with it out in the world daily, though the Bible is very clear about its reality and its truth, our gut reaction is to deny that. Our gut reaction is to say it's not that serious. We don't feel like it's that serious. We really just don't, especially when we're not thinking about it. And we, uh, we do it every time there's a mass shooting, right? And um, Awful what happened last week, right? But... The, the, this is kind of with any issue in our country these days, but when, we, when any kind of evil ever happens, right? It's too many guns. It's not enough guns. What an absurd argument, right? It's mentally, mental, mental illness. It's not enough protection at the school. It's, it's one thing or another, right? And look, that, that's not to say that they're not issues that we need to talk through. Um, there used to be a time, I think, when our country used to talk through things, but it's beside the point that... What we're trying to do is we take acts of evil, we take evil and pain and suffering in our life, and we try to latch onto things to make sense of it. We try to have diagnoses so we can feel like we can fix it. And the answer is not just to sit back and say, well, sin is the problem. That doesn't fix anything. But we have to start there. That, that is where it starts. You know, the greatest trick is the great movie, the, unusual, the Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was to make the world believe he didn't exist. This is what we do with the reality of sin and evil in our lives, in our world, in our own hearts. Have we realized that? Does that bear weight to us when we think about it? You know, um, when we think about the evil and the destruction of sexual abuse or sex harassment, sexual harassment, the evil and destruction of that, that's kind of obvious, isn't it, right? We can, we can kind of pinpoint that for the, for the evil and the destruction that it is. But what about... Um, the neglect of meaningful relationships or friendships while you're in college. What about isolating yourself, isolating your problems and keeping everything to yourself all the time? Is that not destruction as well? It's easy to think about addictions to, to whatever, or to, to destructive lifestyles. Those, the destruction and violence that wreaks in somebody's life is clear. But what about how we're addicted to approval? We're addicted to how many people like us. How many people think well of us and the thousand deaths that that causes us every single day? It's clear to us when we see the destruction that adultery reaps in a family or a marriage, right? But what about when you're alone with your computer or with your boyfriend or girlfriend? The destruction is there too. 
It is. All sin is destruction and violence because all sin is living against, contrary, in opposition to the way we were designed, the way we were created. So it's violence against ourselves, it's violence against others, and it's violence ultimately against God. And that's it. And that's where this leads to. When you combine combine the evil of sin, coming in contact with that which God deeply loves, which is what He made, the things that He made, that it inevitably leads to judgment. So this story is about the destruction of sin, but it inevitably therefore leads, this story is also about the judgment against sin, the judgment of sin. Even, look, even the most churched, longest, you know, oldest Christians in the room here. We look at God's solution here in Genesis 6-9, through 9, and we don't know quite what to do with it. There's nothing easy about this story. There's nothing that's like, well, that makes sense. He needed to do that. There's no answer like that. He kills, he determines, and he does wipe out everything on this earth. It's unsettling, and it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be unsettling. But this is the conundrum. If evil is not just something that is only out there, but also in here, the conundrum is the only way to destroy evil is to destroy humanity. But what does God do here? What does this judgment on sin look like? Three things. It's reluctant. It's complete and it's just. Okay? The first thing is it's, it's reluctant. Do not miss. Do not skip over verses 6 and 7. When God saw what had become of His world and of His image in His world, He is sorry. He is grieved. His heart is broken. Our son brings tremendous sorrow. Let me, let me rephrase it. Our sin and the sin done against us brings great sorrow, pain, and even anger to God. Whatever you do to make sense of the reality of this judgment that we see in this story, here it is. You cannot divorce it from the character of God. You cannot divorce it from the character of God. He takes your sin more seriously than you do because He loves you more than you even love yourself. He takes your sin more seriously than you do and He is grieved by your sin more than you are. God loves His world and His people so much that His heart breaks over their condition. That, by the way, they brought on themselves. Right? We saw that the last couple of weeks. Remember, the God of Genesis 1, He is the life giver. What defines this God is He comes out of the gate in Genesis 1 and creates all living things. He is the life giver, the life sharer. He loves to love. He loves to give life and to give love and to share life and to share love. That's why He creates. He is by nature life-giving and love-giving. And if that's who it is, it shouldn't, if that's who He is, it should not surprise us that it grieves Him to judge sin. It grieves him. It brings sorrow to him. I'm reminded of uh, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew, where the main character, Diggory, he finds himself um, being transported to all these different worlds, and he keeps hearing about this life giver named Aslan. And the backstory to Diggory is that his mother is deathly ill, and that's all he cares about in the entire world. So the more he learns about this character, Aslan, the more he thinks to himself, if I can just find this Aslan, he can cure my mother. 
And as the story winds up, he does meet Aslan, and he's with Aslan, and Aslan keeps telling him different things that have nothing to do with his mother. And finally, Diggory can't contain it anymore, and so he finally just blurts out, Won't you cure my mother? And this is what we read then. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. I don't know where you are with God tonight. Especially when it comes to the problem of evil and the problem of pain and suffering. Your skepticism or your doubt or your confusion, your anger, it may very well be rooted in a pain so deep that I cannot even begin to sympathize or empathize with it. But what I can tell you is that you cannot miss what the Bible tells us continually. That this God, the God of the Bible, is not immune to pain. He feels it. He has felt it. He grieves for us. He grieves with us. Now look, say that and it sounds great. That, that is not an attempt to make some philosophical magic wand that just makes this story okay for you. There's nothing that will do that. But here's the thing. Every worldview has to account for the problem of evil and suffering in some way. And I can offer to you that it's Christianity alone among the world religions that says that, the God, that God Himself put Himself on the hook of human suffering. He hung Himself on it. John Stott, a commentator and theologian, he said it like this. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? The first thing we have to see about this judgment is that God is reluctant to carry it out. But the next thing we do see, though, is that this judgment is complete. It happens exactly as God says it will happen. He says that he is going to wipe out all living things, and that's what he does. It's complete. God is absolutely serious about judging and destroying sin, and that's what he does here. And it, again, it's, that's not, that doesn't help us say, okay, well, that makes sense. It's hard. It's heavy. We have to deal with this and struggle through it. But the problem with this story is that we've anesthetized, it to, or, or anesthetized ourselves to such a degree. What is the most popular image on the walls of church nurseries? It's Noah's Ark. That's horrific. Have you ever thought about that, how horrific that is? Because you know what? For every giraffe and lion and whatever else is sitting happily on the ark, there are countless others rotting in the water. For every of one of the eight humans on that ark, there are countless others floating dead in the water. Everything outside of the ark dies. God's judgment does exactly what it set out to do. We have to understand it's not a scare tactic. It, God's not capricious. He doesn't just like fly off the handle. But it should sober us to understand the stance that God takes against sin. 
Because again, if sin and evil aren't just out there, but actually in here, then what this account should lead us to is this conclusion. My sin is deathly serious and it must be dealt with. In fact, you read on through the story and you find out that Noah understood this because here we're told that he was, he was charged to take two by two, right, of all these animals. But we read further on the story that he also takes seven pairs of clean animals for sacrifice. What did Noah understand? Noah understood that God's judgment against sin was complete. God would deal with sin. And Noah understood that he was taking sin onto that ark and that it needed to be dealt with. And you do it through sacrifice. We have to understand, we all yearn, we all long, in some sense or another, for sin to be completely dealt with. We all yearn for that. None of us wants violence to reign, anger to reign, hatred, lust, abuse, sickness, death. None of us wants any of these things to reign in this world. We all long for those things to be eradicated. Just as when my mom first told me that that spot on her lung was cancerous, right? I didn't know how big it was. I didn't know if it was contained. I didn't know anything. The only thing that I could think at that moment is I want it out of you completely. God's judgment against sin is complete. Final thing about the judgment of sin is that it's just. I want you to see something. Look at verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt. It was filled with violence. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Then you look down at verse 17 and he says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. It's interesting because in the Hebrew that what my translation says in verse 17 as destroy is the same word from 11 and 12 that's translated corrupted. So you got to see what this means. What this is saying is that God says man desires and has filled my world with corruption and destruction. Therefore, I am going to send and give him destruction and corruption. It's actually the most sobering part of the story, I think, that God's judgment, his wrath, his punishment here. It's when he finally gives you what you've so long deserved, not deserved, so long desired. It's when He finally gives you what you want. This is why Paul in Romans 1, he says that he talks about this very thing when he talks about God's wrath being revealed against the unrighteous because by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth. And then you read on it says, so God gave them up. And so God gave them up. And so God gave them up. It's not that God gave up on them. No, He's saying God gave them what they wanted. His wrath was revealed against them because He gave them what they wanted. He let them go. God's wrath is perfectly just because it's a handing over to the desires of our heart. Who knew that the worst thing that could happen to you would be for someone to actually give you what you really want? It's an interesting thing in Acts. uh, A couple times in Acts, Paul recounts his conversion on the Damascus Road. He recounts it a couple of different times in Acts. In Acts 26, when he's recounting it, he says something that's actually not in Acts chapter 9. He says that when Jesus confronted him on the road, he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? A goad was a long, sharp stick. It was used for when you herded animals. If an animal would get, a, get out of line, you would jab them with this, this pointed stick, right? 
And so as Jesus confronts Paul, Saul, who later became Paul, on that road, he's saying the way that you're living life, persecuting the church, persecuting me, rejecting me, is it hard for you? Do you not realize that you are kicking against the goads? You are kicking against life the way that it's supposed to be. And in those terms, what we understand then about God's judgment is that it's when by our own persistence in continuing sin... We run ourselves through. We just run through it. For all of us, what we're being told here is that there is a flood coming if we continue in our sin. That we will be given up to that which we keep pursuing if we don't turn from it. Some of you think the biggest problem in your life up until you got to college, was the ways that you had been held back, the way that you'd, ways that you'd been restricted, right? And you've maybe been in college four years, maybe you've only been in college for six months, and you already find yourself late at night dealing with the numbness and the coldness of the fact that you have done or participated in things that you never thought you would have. That's the flood. Some of you, you come in here, or you come to religious gatherings like this week in and week out, But you refuse to listen. The Bible is there. Your friends tell you it's there. You hear the word preached, but you're going to do it your way. You're going to, you'll figure, you know, you'll figure the serious stuff about life out once you get a job or you'll figure it out once you get married or once you have kids or once they're ready to go off to college. We'll deal with that thing, right? The warning here is that if you continue to refuse to listen to the fact that God desires to show mercy, one day He is going to give you what you want. And you'll stop hearing completely. That's the flood. Some of you, and I, you know, I feel like I bring this up almost every sermon. This has been one of the most heartbreaking aspects of being a campus minister for five years. Some of you are hell-bent on climbing some ladder and you don't even know where it's going. You just think you're supposed to go up. And so you will forsake friendships. You will forsake this and that to climb, 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 completely blind to the fact that what you're really doing is you're just trying to prove to yourself or whoever that you matter in the world. Or you're trying to prove to the world and God that you're good enough. Or you're trying to wash away all the guilt and all the shame by showing that you really can do it. And what you're doing really though is you're refusing to accept the gospel of grace. That to be right with this God, you cannot do it on your own. There is nothing of your own doing that will provide it. And the warning here is that if you, can, if you persist, He will give you what you so desire. And He'll measure you by your deeds. That's the flood. God's judgment on sin, it's mercifully reluctant. But it's complete and it's just. But here's an interesting thing about this judgment. This story is also about rescue from sin. That the judgment itself is actually a rescue. We're supposed to feel the weight of the crisis here. We're supposed to feel, and we're also supposed to feel this fact. If you're, if you're thinking about it, if you're paying attention to what the intent of this flood was, you have to have a, you, you will eventually come to this thought. The flood didn't work. Did it? The flood didn't work. Think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, out in the world, having endured 400 years of brutal slavery. 
They knew as they looked at the world around them, how many ever years after the flood it was, that the flood did not completely work. That sin and evil and wickedness was still there out in the world, but also very much in their own hearts as well. God cleansed the world of everything but Noah's family. Noah is a man of integrity. He was a man of faith. He exhibits faithful obedience. But when he entered the ark, sin went with him. Because he wasn't sinless. And so the crisis is, how can God destroy evil without completely destroying man? Because that seems to be the only answer. This is where verse 18 comes in. Where God promises Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. This is the first time that that word covenant is explicitly used in the Bible. It's established here. It's reiterated when they get off the ark in chapter 9. You see, Noah doesn't enter the ark as a mere escape with his life. He enters the ark with a promise of new life in a new world. That's the promise he goes into the ark with. And so in chapter 9, when he gets off the ark, God wants to reassure him of this promise. And so God uh, hangs a symbol of this promise. It's his bow in the sky, right? A rainbow. And I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I mean, I guess you can look at a bow and you can tell that that word isn't like a bow in your hair. It's actually the Hebrew word for a battle bow, for a bow that you would use to shoot an arrow. And so what we're told, what we're basically being told is that what God is saying to Noah is that I have judged the earth because of its violence. But because of my covenant, I will now hang a symbol of violence in the air. But I will not point it at you. I'll point it at myself. Because again, Noah coming out of the ark fully aware of the gravity of his sin... How in the world can we make sure that this will never happen again? And to drive the point home, God hangs up his bow and he points it at himself. And this is what God was saying. God was not, he wasn't saying that I will no longer judge sin. What he was saying was the next time I judge, next time I bring cosmic judgment on sin, I'll take it on myself. And that's the, that's, that's the great thing now. Do you want to know how destructive and corrupting sin is? The flood doesn't hold a candle to the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to know how corrupting and evil sin is? Look at the cross. Because Jesus was covered with it. Ours, our sin. And it tore him apart. Creation itself couldn't hold its light. The earth quaked that day as Jesus cried out, it is finished. What was finished? The flood. The wrath and judgment of God against sin. And here it is. God is so holy and loving that sin will be judged and destroyed. God is so holy and loving that sin will be destroyed That means there's a day coming where Jesus is going to return and he is going to cleanse the entire world of all sin, of all violence, of all lying, of all destruction, of all perversion, of all anything that you can think of. But such is his grace and mercy that he was judged and destroyed himself in our place. 
Peter in 1 Peter 3 puts it like this. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you get the picture there. Just as Noah is saved through the water, so you are saved through baptism. The judgment waters saved Noah because the same judgment waters that destroyed the earth lifted the ark out of harm's way. So you too, through baptism, the only way you can be saved is to get into the ark. To be baptized, as Paul says, into the death of Jesus Christ. And therefore also baptized into his resurrection. The only way... To be safe from condemnation is to hide in the one who has already been condemned in your place. It's the only way. Judgment is coming. But the thing is, for the person that believes that, that you can hide in one who's already been condemned, the one who believes that knows that the knowledge of God's attitude towards sin is actually good news. Because he was so devoted to ridding you of the penalty of your sin, he gave his son. And he's so devoted to ridding you of the presence of sin that he put his spirit inside of you. And he will not stop until he completes it. And so when we read or when we hear about this day of the Lord, we praise because we're reminded of a day not just when not just any more violence, pain or tears out there. But there is a day coming when every ounce of bitterness and pain and disappointment Confusion, abuse, perversion. There's a day coming when all of that will be wiped away in here. We sing it in the hymn, It Is Well. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. O my soul. There's a judgment coming. But even in judgment, there is good news. Let's pray. Father, Would you reveal to us, would you give us eyes to behold the gravity of our sin? But would you not leave us there? Would you lead us to the cross that we would see it nailed there? Every single ounce of it. Would that be a glorious thought Would our souls even be able to praise you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.